So quite often when we talk about the Christmas story, we end our story with Luke 2, the 19th and the 20th verse. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. But this morning, we're going to pick up where very few people continue to read with the rest of Luke 2 and then a verse from Matthew. But before we do that, I want to talk just for a moment about travel because travel is sort of typical of our modern day Yuletide Christmas celebrations. Kids are off from school, and if we're not visiting family or friends for the holidays, the expectation is we'll be traveling, going somewhere. In our very mobile society, the highways and the airports are crowded every December, and AAA this year estimates that 115.2 million people will be traveling, moving this holiday season. 104 million will be traveling by car. 7.5 million will be flying. That leaves about 4 million people that will be traveling by bus, train, ship, or boat. I looked up but couldn't find any statistics for traveling by donkey or walking. But the Christmas carols promise we'll be home for Christmas is more than a promise. It's a requirement today. Travel also characterized the first Christmas. First, Joseph and Mary traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem. We're pretty familiar with that. They also traveled to church or what we would um, in those days called the synagogue. And a bit later, they would head off to Jerusalem. And then they took a rather long excursion to Egypt. Meanwhile, there was an amazing group of magi who came from the east, trekked miles, if you will, over the desert to come to Judah and go back. Travel has always been associated with Christmas. So, as is our custom over the last several weeks and with this series, here's the test, the examination. Let's see how we do. We're going to test your Christmas knowledge of early travel. First, eight days after he was born, Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to be circumcised according to the law. True or false? Second, Jesus was officially named at his circumcision. True or false? Third, Jesus, a form of Joshua, means God saves. True or false? Forty days after Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary went to the temple and sacrificed an unblemished lamb for Mary's purification. True or false? Fifth, after Mary's purification, Joseph and Mary presented Jesus to the Lord as required by law for all firstborn sons and then bought him back. True or false? Six, while in the temple... A man came up to Joseph and Mary and took the baby Jesus into his arms. True or false? Seven. While in the temple, a prophetess named Anna came up to Joseph and Mary and gave thanks to God. True or false? Eight. Joseph left the same night the angel told him about Herod's plan to kill Jesus. True or false? Nine. 
There would have been many Jewish families that Joseph and Mary could have stayed with in Egypt, true or false. And 10, the Sphinx and the Great Pyramids had already been standing in Egypt for over 2,500 years when Jesus arrived, true or false. So the scripture, the scripture picks up for us in Luke in the second chapter and the 21st verse. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, Jesus was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was a righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. And then just one verse from Matthew chapter 2. It's the 13th verse, and Matthew writes it like this. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Eight days after his birth, Jewish law required that Jesus should be circumcised. Circumcision was the symbol. It was a physical daily reminder of the special covenant that God had made with his chosen people that went all the way back to Abraham. At this ceremony, the child was also given his formal name. This rite is one of the most important hallmarks in Judaism. 
Typically, the nearest rabbi would come to the home in order to perform the ceremony. But since Mary and Joseph were not living in their home, the ceremony might have taken place in the home in which they were staying, but it also might have taken place in the nearest synagogue. There was no need or expectation to go to the temple in Jerusalem. Normally, the father of the son would ask to participate, much like many fathers today cut the umbilical cord, and the rabbi would usually agree. But this circumcision naming ceremony was, like many of our baptisms today, an occasion for great joy among parents and relatives and friends. Because of the circumstances surrounding the birth and location that is far from their hometown of Nazareth, this was likely a rather small group that assembled, perhaps as small as Mary and Joseph and the child and the rabbi, but more likely with the hosts of this family and maybe a few neighbors as well. Together they would have celebrated that another son of Israel had been included in the great covenant of God. The newborn child was also given a proper biblical name. In this case, the name had already been given to both Mary and Joseph by an angel. You are to call him Yahshua. Joshua. The same name of the leader who you and I know followed Moses. The name of the one who would lead them into the promised land. Yeshua. Yahshua. Or the Greek form of that word, Jesus, means God saves. God is salvation. Following circumcision, the child would have been uncomfortable for a few days after the shedding of blood. Remember, it is the shedding of blood that was required for the entrance into the covenant, into every covenant. It would be foreshadowed, a foreshadowing of the pain and the bloodshed that would come, which would provide for our entrance into that covenant as well. Then 40 days after the child's birth, the family would have packed up Jesus and headed for the five to six mile trek from Bethlehem into Jerusalem for Mary's purification. Again, according to the law of Moses, women were required to purify themselves after childbirth by taking up offerings first to the tabernacle and in Jesus' day to the temple. It was to be 40 days after the birth of a son, and it was to be 80 days after the birth of a daughter. It was, at minimum from Bethlehem, one long day round trip. The magnificent temple in Jerusalem was nearing completion at this time. That was a gift, if you will, from Herod, who was trying to placate the Jews. It was a gleaming white edifice wedged in the northeastern part of the city. The sprawling enclave was rimmed with a labyrinth of colonnaded porticles and gates. For pious Jews, this was the center of their faith. This was the center of their whole world. Purification required the sacrifice of an unblemished yearling lamb. Again, it was the blood of a lamb that was required to provide for forgiveness, for purification, and for reconciliation. But Mary and Joseph, being poor, couldn't afford an unblemished lamb, so instead, the scripture says, they offered a pair of turtle doves. 
somewhat like our pigeons, according to Leviticus 12. The minimum, it was the minimum required by the law. But few knew and understood that at that very moment, Mary was holding in her arms the unblemished lamb that God would provide for the sacrifice of Mary and Joseph's sins, for Mary's purification, for the sins of the world, as well as yours and mine. Each family was also required to dedicate their firstborn son to God's service in order to fulfill the law. That was the law. Exodus 13, first two verses. Dedicate to me every firstborn. This is called the Pidyon Haban. And according to Numbers 3, verses 13 and 15, it took place after the newborn son was 30 days old. This ceremony underscores that Jesus was free from any bodily blemish. That is, this is the ceremony that is certifying that Jesus is an unblemished lamb, eligible for sacrifice for one's sin. And after he was dedicated to the Lord, the law allowed for the family to buy him back, to redeem him, if you will. The cost was five shekels, according to Numbers 18. At today's exchange rate, with inflation, that's a whopping dollar and 50 cents in their place. That is, as their substitute, God provided the service of the Levites. The ceremony of redeeming a firstborn son reminded the Jewish people of their redemption in the, from the slavery in Egypt and how, they were to, and how they were able to avoid the last of the 10 plagues that afflicted the Egyptians. You'll remember the slaughter of the firstborn. They could have escaped that by slaughtering a lamb in accordance with God's command, and then placing the blood of the lamb over the edifice of the doorposts. On seeing the blood, the angel of death would pass over and the family firstborn would be spared. So Joseph and Mary went to Jerusalem to present their firstborn son, the very lamb that would one day be slaughtered in the shadow of that same temple, On seeing him slaughtered and his blood poured out, God would lift the death sentence from all who believed in him and from all who are part of his family. Up until this moment, Jesus had followed the pattern of every single newborn Jewish son, fulfilling the law. And then, well, and then things get a little bit interesting As Joseph and Mary are standing there holding their infant son in the court of the women of the temple, a righteous and devout old man named Simeon comes up to them. Simeon, the scripture tells us, had been promised by God that he would not die until he was able to see in the flesh the Messiah, the Christ. And so he waited patiently for years, perhaps even for decades after that promise, going to the temple day after day after day. But on this day, with the prompting of the Holy Spirit, he approaches Joseph and Mary. He explains, no doubt, to their absolute amazement, this arrangement that he has with God and God has with him. And he takes the child into his arms and praises God. 
Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. That benediction and its claims continue to ring through Christian history as one of the most beloved prayers in the entire scripture. Then Simeon turns to Joseph and to Mary and blesses them. And then he adds some specific words to Mary. This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. The text indicates that a sword, a source of pain, a source of bloodshed will pass through the soul of Jesus and through the soul of Mary. The text tells us as readers that Mary will participate in the events of the cross and her suffering will also contribute to expose the thoughts of many hearts. Will, does Mary's faithful presence at the cross Bring the enemies of Christ and evil forces to look at themselves and contrast their brutality with her courageous, courageous love. Mary will remain faithful to the very end. She will witness the suffering of her firstborn son until his, and through his death on the cross. Now please understand she is not under arrest. She could have walked away. She knew that she could not change what was happening by arguing with the soldiers or even pleading with the chief priests, but she refused to go away, to leave. The only decision she was free to make was to stay or to leave, to enter into Jesus' suffering with him or to walk away. She chose the latter. She chose to enter into his suffering as all followers, as all disciples of Jesus must. The sword passed through her heart, and in the process, once again, she becomes the model for Christian discipleship. Simeon plays a transitional role in this gospel, a role uniting the Old and the New Testament, a role between prophecy and fulfillment, the role of bringing hope into our reality. And then... As old as Simeon might have looked, chances are pretty good that he looked a lot younger than the next guest, the elderly woman. Her name was Anna. She was a prophetess who had been hanging out in the temple for most of her life. And depending on how you read the original Greek and how you understand what Luke is trying to say here, because to be honest, it's not perfectly clear in the original language, she was either 84 years old, which most scholars think is the most likely, or what Luke is saying is that she lived 84 years after her seven-year marriage ended, which would make her about 105. But the interesting thing to note, and Luke notes it for us, is that she comes from the tribe of Asher. Asher was one of those lost 10 tribes meaning 
She's part of the remnant of Israel. She forms the perfect female counterpart to Simeon. Her response to meeting Jesus is to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were looking because she was focused on the redemption of Jerusalem. She reminds us that even remnants are welcome. Anna models faithful Advent waiting. For some reason, Luke was unable, or perhaps he simply found it unnecessary, to find a faithful witness to the prophetic statements made by Anna. He includes some for Simeon, but nothing for Anna. Luke chooses not to fabricate a speech. So the question is, why does he talk about Anna, the prophet? Likely, because throughout his gospel, Luke is emphasizing that Jesus makes it very clear that the gospel is for both men and women. That is, for all people, for those who are culturally welcomed and accepted, as well as for those who are culturally unaccepted and ignored. A careful examination of Luke's gospel finds at least 27 sets of stories that focus on a male followed or including a female. For example, an angel visits two persons, Zachariah and Mary. Two songs are recorded side by side, one from Zechariah, one from Mary. Here we have two witnesses, Simeon and Anna. Similar kinds of pairings occur throughout Luke's gospel. Jesus came for all. Jews and remnants, male and female, young and old. Shortly after Joseph and Mary returned to Bethlehem after their amazing day at the temple, they sense the wonder, and it's compounded by the arrival of Magi. More on the Magi next Sunday when we gather for Epiphany. It's no wonder that Luke records that Mary treasured and pondered all these words and events of prophecy and encouragement and comfort in her heart. But when the wise men had left, the brimming happiness and excitement of that very first Christmas came to a rather abrupt end. Joseph received another angelic visit in a dream. Maybe you and I would describe it more as a nightmare because the angel warned Joseph that Herod was out to kill Mary's son. Without hesitating or waiting, Joseph roused his sleeping family, packed their meager belongings, and took along the providential gold that they had received to finance the trip. And they headed out on the highway south toward Hebron to get to Egypt. Please understand this is not a planned honeymoon. This is an emergency getaway, a trekking of a distance that is more than twice the distance from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Scripture tells us nothing about the exact route that they took, but the shortest, most direct route, the safest path, if you will, was the regular caravan trail from Bethlehem, south on the Hebron Road, sharply west to Gaza and the coastal highway to Pelusium, 
the door to Egypt. At an average walk of 20 miles per day on a fairly level route, the journey would have lasted 10 to 12 to two weeks of time. So we have seen in our study of the first Christmas that wherever the Bible seems to be a bit silent or offers us less insights, others love to step in and embellish the story and add to the tradition and create some, some legend. And that's been done with this travel story from Bethlehem to Egypt as well. In the apophical Arab gospel of the infancy, there are some additional details. The story is told about how Joseph and Mary were accosted on their trip by robbers on the Sinai road. But these robbers found nothing of value to steal. And so they took pity on the couple and instead of taking from them, these robbers then gave them provisions and sent them on their way. The story goes on. One of those benevolent bandits, the story says, would cross Jesus' path again some 30 years later at Calvary. He is said to be the penitent thief on Jesus' right. Possible? Sure. But not very likely. So where did they go when they got to Egypt? Where would they stay? The truth is there were myriads, that is there was a large but unknown number of Jews who were already living in Egypt at the time of Mary and Joseph when they came to seek refuge. In fact, there were more Jews living in Alexandria than there were living in the city of Jerusalem at the time. 40% of Alexandria was Jewish. And while it seems unlikely that Mary and Joseph would have all gone all the way to the Nile Delta, it underscores that there was a large Jewish community in Egypt that would have been wide open to embracing this young Jewish couple and taking care of them. And we are reminded again of God's care, of his provision, and of his incredible planning. The place of their sojourn in Egypt is unknown. And it's okay just to leave it that way. Matthew then concludes his version of the Christmas story by telling Joseph's third dream, where an angel comes to Joseph and alerts Joseph to Herod's demise and tells him to come on back to Palestine, fulfilling the prophecy, out of Egypt I have called my son, Hosea 1.1, 11.1. When Joseph and Mary return to their homeland, an unhappy surprise awaits them. Herod was indeed dead, but his son, Archelaus, ruled Judea as his successor. And Archelaus had just started his reign, his reign of terror, by massacring over 3,000 Jews who had an uprising in the city of Jerusalem in the temple. And so the angels came to Joseph and suggested it would be better for them to return all the way home to Nazareth in Galilee, where a milder son of the same King Herod, Herod Antipas, had been appointed tetrarch with the permission of the Roman emperor. So answers. Question one. Eight days after he was born, Mary and Joseph took Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to be circumcised according to the law. 
highly unlikely, usually in the home, perhaps in the nearby synagogue. Jesus was officially named at his circumcision. That is true. Jesus means God saves. True. Forty days after Jesus' birth, Joseph and Mary went to the temple and sacrificed an unblemished lamb for her purification. They couldn't afford an unblemished lamb, so the answer is false. After Mary's purification, Joseph and Mary presented Jesus to the Lord as required by law for all firstborn sons and then brought him back. True. While in the temple, a man came up to Joseph and Mary and took the baby in his arms. True. While in the temple, a prophetess named Anna came up to Joseph and Mary and gave thanks to God. True. Joseph left the same night the angel told him about Herod's plan to kill Jesus. True. There were many Jewish families that Joseph and Mary could stay with in Egypt. True. The Sphinx and great pyramids had already been standing in Egypt for over 2,500 years when Jesus arrived. True. In his wonderful little book, Pilgrimage, Richard Peace distinguishes between settlers and pilgrims. He defines a settler as a person who has stopped moving. A settler has solidified his ideas, his attitudes, and has settled down to live within those boundaries. The settler settles for a static view of the Christian life. Continued growth is not all that necessary, a settler thinks, and it's way too much work to get involved in. And while most believers don't intend to become settlers, many do. Way too many followers of Jesus settle for good enough and simply stop growing spiritually. Very few followers of Jesus become fully devoted disciples. Disciples of Jesus, however, are called to become pilgrims like Jesus. Pilgrims have three distinguishing attributes, qualities. First, Pilgrims understand they are always on a journey. They are to be constantly moving. Like Abraham, they go where God calls, when God calls. A pilgrim is always learning, always engaging in new experiences, always open to new ideas and new challenges, always seeking to discern God's will and to step into it and follow to be obedient. The pilgrim longs to discover deeper truths, to grow in wisdom and in understanding, to widen their experience. In the first six months of his life, Jesus reminds us that life is a constant ongoing journey. Jesus traveled to Jerusalem. He traveled to Egypt. He traveled to Nazareth all before he was even two years of age. As a rabbi, we know he was constantly on the move. Listen to these words of Luke. And the child grew. And the child became strong. And the child was filling and filled with wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. Second, pilgrims have a destination in mind. Richard Peace says that pilgrims are not like or to be confused with gypsies. Gypsies move simply for the sake of moving. And they tend to return to the same place over and over again. It is almost as if they are going around in circles. 
But pilgrims are always focused on a destination, always headed in one direction. Abraham set his sights, the scripture says, on the land that God promised to him. Israel, freed from the bondage of Egypt, set their sights on the promised land. Jesus, from the very beginning, sets his sights on the cross, on the sword that would pierce his soul. Disciples of Jesus Christ are to be constantly searching for a better country, Hebrews eleven sixteen. Jesus set out for Jerusalem. You and I as pilgrims need to set out for the new Jerusalem. Third, pilgrims know there is always a price to pay for the journey. And they're willing to pay the price for the sake of arriving at the destination. We testify that Jesus suffered throughout his entire life, but especially while he was on the cross. Heidelberg Catechism, answer 37. The journey through life is always challenging. Journeying always means that we're required to leave something or someone behind. Sometimes it's family. Sometimes it's close friends. Sometimes it's a city, a place. Often it's our own comfort and our own securities and our own routines. The price can include breaking new ground, reaching beyond the ordinary, hardships and losses, but it always means denying ourselves, taking up a cross and following him. The spiritual journey is the journey home. It's the journey to the promised land. And sometimes it leads through wildernesses, but often it means walking through valleys and sometimes over mountain peaks. Sometimes we find ourselves treading the waters that are deep. But as followers of Jesus, we know that he has walked the path before us and he walks the path today with us. But if we're to reach the promised land, we, like Jesus, must always be people on a journey. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Mary and Joseph who came alongside to protect him, to assist him in keeping the law. And Father, we're reminded as we dig into those verses and those passages of the impact that this has on our life even a couple thousand years later. We too, Lord, celebrate we are part of the covenant. We too, Lord, celebrate we have been purchased at a price. We too, Lord, acknowledge we are people on a journey. Father, keep our eyes focused on the destination. Keep us focused on Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.